102.5 FM KQAM. It is a Saturday morning. Thanks for hanging out with us today, trying to get you up and moving for another weekend. Got a little bit of snow on the ground. It's nice and cool. I walked outside in the 25 degrees today. I walked out in my shorts and T-shirt, took a big old deep breath and said, ah, it's kind of nice. I'll ride on to it as long as I can. I know people are shaking their heads saying, Andy, what the hell? What the heck, man? Come on. It's going to be like 60 degrees tomorrow, so I guess we'll get back up into the relatively warm weather. But until then, I'll enjoy the cool while it lasts. Welcome into the show. Great to have you along. we got a big program lined up for you today for a Saturday morning, and I want to hear from you throughout the program as well. 316-721-8255. 316-721-TALK. The entire show presented by Phil's Coins. 9344 West Central Avenue. Buying, selling, and trading with honesty and integrity. It's Phil's Coins uh, opening up here in about 20 minutes until 2.30 this afternoon. You can also find them online at philscoins.com. Hour number two, we have U.S. Senator Roger Marshall. We sat down with him earlier this week to talk about the latest out of Washington, D.C., as they are pushing to end the emergency declaration for COVID at the federal level so we can start fighting some of the other mandates that are lingering up there at the federal level as well. Uh, so we'll talk with him about that. Also, bottom of the hour, Derek Schmidt, U.S. Uh, or Kansas Attorney General, and a candidate for governor for the state of Kansas. We'll talk with him on some legal issues going on in the state as well. So big show. Also, I have, hold on, where's my notes here? Oh, yeah, I have some tickets for you. Don't call in yet, but we will do it at some point throughout here the next couple hours. We have some tickets to Disney on Ice coming up in a few weeks as well at Interest Bank Arena. It's a lot. To, I tell you what, uh, I mean, obviously, it's Disney things for the kids, but it's kind of fun. I've been there a couple of times, and it's a lot of fun. So highly recommend it. we got some four-packs for you for the family. Take the kiddos and have a great time. We'll play that sounder and get you some tickets here in just a little bit. But our number one, hanging out with the man. It's been a while since we've had him on the show. I mean, we have to play the sounder every time. The man himself, Sedgwick County Commissioner Jim Howell. Jim, good to see you, my friend. Well, good morning, Andy. It's great to be here. It's been, I think the last time we had you on was back in like November or something. It's been a while. I can't keep track. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it's hard on Saturdays because I only have two hours a week now instead of three hours every day, five days a week. So it's a little bit different. I'll tell you what, a lot has happened since we talked last. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're kicking off a brand new year. You guys have been extremely busy. You've been front and center on a lot of the news, of course, at the county level, because you're kind of the odd man out right now, aren't you? Sometimes I say I'm on the island. <laughs> <laughs> kind of hanging out there on the lonesome. But, I mean, how how are we doing county-wise for the beginning of the year, kicking off 2022? Well, it's interesting. This last week, we uh, actually, on the day we had all the snow, we actually started our budget uh, process for the 2023 budget. Mm. And so we had um, Jeremy Hill from from WSU, the economist, who kind of gives us a, a uh, status of all things. And of course, there's so much uncertainty right now. Yeah. No one really knows what to predict at this point. And our budget, of course, is built is really built on speculation. We have to. And uh, that's the way government budgets work. Sure. Um, in your own budget, you might actually decide not to spend some money because you're not sure exactly what's happening. And the government, we don't have the luxury to really save to save money that way. It doesn't work that way. So uh, we have a lot of challenges in the government this year. That's that was the first thing I would tell you. So that's probably the you know one thing we actually have to do in government is is figure out uh, revenue and taxes. Sure. Everything else is policy, and and that's where honestly the the uh, taxes and budget are boring, but they're extremely important. Obviously. But the policy issues are what really gets my uh, gets gets me going, and there's a lot of issues. The issues with Cedric Lofton, mm-hmm. the young man that died in our facility, that's a very hot topic. Of course, COVID is very very hot. Yeah, 
Um, legislature's in session right now. We've got a lot of bills that we actually are touching right now at the state house. We're testifying on a number of bills. I've been up there uh, several times, uh, twice just this last week to testify on some legislation. Um, so that's pretty hot right now. Of course, I, one of the things I, I talk about, I even wrote about it this week. It'll be in the uh, news this next week. But election security is extremely a hot topic. And, and of course, because we're, we, because we're the board of canvassers, as the Sedgwick County Commissioners, I, I think that's a topic that I need to be well-versed on. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit. So that's just some things, but um, uh, on the, I'll just say that. But all I those ha- issues are major. Like you said, I mean, those are all big issues that a lot of people are. are fired up about. And going into a midterm election, I think those issues are going to get even more important <laughs> and more intense as we get closer to the midterms. Without question, they're, they're going to have an impact on uh, on the fall elections. Yeah. And, um, this last week, I know you you intended to go. I did get to go to the Jim Caviezel uh, yes. uh, event that happened for the Value Them Both. Of course, we know Value Them Both is the constitutional amendment that uh, that causes all of our pro-life laws, that have pa- the 20 laws that have been passed in the last uh, 15, 20 years or so, about 15 years, to uh, to actually be uh, sustained in our, in our laws. Right now, they're all being threatened. In fact, several of those have been overturned. But that means the fall elections are really, really important this year. And yeah. if people think, you know, people are concerned about election security, um, they don't think there's a reason to vote. Um, we are going to see the elections of this year are going to be very interesting. I'll just say that I'm already watching them. Yeah. And there's so many things to think about with, you know, why is it so important to vote? And so this election security issue is is extremely hot. And uh, there's a lot of bills in the legislature. You probably know this. I, I guess you do. My wife's actually. <laughs> My wife's actually serving in a temporary role as a state legislator right now. Sure. And it so happens that uh, she's on the elections committee in the House. And so I've been watching that because I'm interested in the topic anyway. But I'd also like to see what she's up to and see <laughs> see the, the topics that come before her. And there's just been so much uh, concern in that committee. She's also on government uh, corrections and on Fed and state. And that happens to be the same bill, same areas also where there's other election bills and also corrections issues that ties into the Cedric Lofton case. And so... It's almost like um, God has kind of created this uh, this opportunity for me to, to to engage the legislature and my wife to engage the legislature on issues that are really relevant to Central County. Sure. So it's been, it's been interesting. It's it's been fun, and I'm just touching some of the high level stuff. There's lots of other things we could talk about. They're just you would not believe what's going on in Central. We're actually moving buildings, for example. It's in the it's in the newspaper today. We're moving from the courthouse. We've been in there for you know since 1950s. We're moving from actually 19. 19- I'm not sure what year we actually moved into the courthouse, but uh, the courthouse was built in 1957. We're moving out of the courthouse. Yeah. And that's the whole reason why we're doing that, which I could talk about. So a lot yeah. going on. Well, you guys have talked about that for a long time. So it's finally happening now, huh? Well, we're doing this as a we're doing this on a temporary basis. You know, the feds gave us all this ARPA money, the American Rescue Plan Act funds. From all the COVID we, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So free money. Yeah, and free so, money. $100 million or something. About $101 million. And so we are going to uh, use some of that money to get us out of the courthouse so we can get the courthouse, you know, sit basically back to the courts where it belongs. And uh, we're going to use some temporary space. It's going to cost us about $3 million for us to have some temporary space for uh, about 36 months. While we're out of the courthouse, we have to find a place to go. So now, now, now the pressure's on mm. for us to actually find some permanent space for the, for the uh, county functions, county government functions that are not court-related functions. And so there's about 10, 10 agencies Things like purchasing, for example, and finance and HR, those things all need to move with us. And so we have about 10 sub-agencies that need to move. We're looking for some permanent space. But for right now, we've got to get out of, get out of the courthouse. And so that's, that's pretty hot. That's happening between 
we're going to sign that paperwork. We're going to approve that paperwork theoretically at this Wednesday's meeting, and then we will have to prepare that space. Sure. And uh, in the next three months, we'll be moving out. So. so do you guys have an idea on where a permanent location would be? Or right now you guys are just focused on getting out to the temporary spot? Well, the reason the reason we haven't picked a permanent spot is because it's pretty hot debate there. You know, some people want to build a brand new building downtown. Yeah. And uh, the projections on that, um, just construction alone is uh, close to $30 million when you add in the A&E. It's called architectural, architectural <laughs> engineering, uh, the furniture and uh of the furnishings, you, you look at uh, the bond in the interest on the bonds. We're looking at a fifty million dollar decision if you build downtown. So, Mike, the, so the hundred million dollars that we're getting from the federal government for COVID nineteen relief, we're not going to use essentially for the community. We're just going to build a brand new building then. Well, no. So I just conflated two <laughs> issues. We're gonna the temporary space is paid for with ARPA, oh, but the okay. permanent space has to be your property tax dollars. It is pro okay. So, yeah, uh, okay. So. so. That makes a little bit more sense, but then still we're going to use, you know, taxpayer money to build a building as opposed to finding a new one and renovating it. If you renovate, is there any cheaper cost there? Yes. Now you now you just now uh, uh, touched the issue why we're debating so hard. We have over a million square feet of office space downtown. In fact, if you look at the county wide, it's much larger than that. But uh, space available, we could purchase and, you know, make it what it needs to be. Right. And so I know there's even buildings downtown in that, in that core of the, of, of Wichita that um, we've seen some buildings that have sold in the last few years for two, one to $2 million that would be perfectly adequate for the County. There's buildings right now we could probably get into for six to $8 million. Um, and so you make those what you need it to be. Maybe you put 10 million into remodel. But now you're talking $20 million, Still maybe less. less. Than 50. Versus 50. And that's, that's why this debate is so hot. You know, we, we've, we need to find the right space. One of my contentions is I don't think we need to be downtown. Mm. This is a big county. And, in fact, you might be surprised, but the center of the county is west of where we sit today. Right, You and I are sitting right this minute. Sure, It's about 119th Street West is the center of Sedgwick County. The center of the population, we might say that's Wichita, but you could probably go within three miles of downtown and service. You know, there's, there's transportation options and hit within the three miles of downtown and have all kinds of options. Right. So this idea we have to be down in the very core of Wichita, I think maybe is, uh, is not true. Uh, used to be there was a financing reason why we would have had to be downtown in the core, but that financing reason actually got replaced in some recent legislation. So we don't, we don't actually have to be downtown. We could be, for example, there's a building at Webb Road in Douglas, for example. It might be a nice place for us to go. Um, that We've talked about that building. We talked about the Gander, the Gander Mountain building there at Kellogg. That's and right. Main Street yeah. is, a, is an option for us. And there's a lots of other buildings downtown we could look at. But the point of the matter is, um, do we have to be in the core right next to City Hall or can we move it out a little bit? Uh, some people talk about Town West Square may be a good spot or, or the Harry Street Mall might, or the Park Lane facility on Oliver might be a good spot. There's other, there's other places we could look at. Sure, It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a beautiful building. I, I would like to share with you, you know Bob Weeks. Mm -hmm. Bob, no, I remember yeah. when yeah, I was in the state house one day and I love Bob, but I was in the state house walking out. It was just finished being remodeled and I was walking out and I thought, my gosh, this building is amazing. And Bob was walking in and I was walking out. I saw, I saw Bob. I say, Hey Bob, isn't this place incredible? He goes, no, I'm not impressed. I said, well, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, look around. <laughs> he says, I am not impressed with the grandeur of government. Yeah. And I thought, you know, he's right. Yeah. There's all this brass and marble and stone and 
It's Very beautiful. True. It's beautiful, but, but it's unnecessary. Don't a, we don't need beautiful government buildings. That's that, what we need is functional government that actually does its job. That is a mindset that needs to be broken, I think, and that's why I think they want to build a new one or they want to have this downtown part, you know, close <laughs> to city, you know, city hall for the city council and that sort of thing, and then have the nice marble and the, they want it to look like almost a state legislative building. And you don't need that. You just need office space to get the job done. We don't need anything, you know, fancy or glamorous or shiny. We just want to make sure that you're efficient, that you're going to get get the job done. That's all we care about. That's all I care about is yeah. get it done, get the job done. We don't need beautiful. But anyway, this temporary space is interesting because in the paper, it makes it look like we're moving, moving up. Well, this building we're moving into is the building at uh, Douglas and Broadway. It's known now as the Ruffin Building. It used to be called the Bank 4 Building sure. a long time ago. And uh, this building, we're going to be up on the basically the first floor and the sixth floor. We're taking over those two areas. They think this is a step up because the building was built in, I think it was built in 19, I don't know, 80, 82 or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's a fairly recent building. And uh, I forget the year it was built. But nevertheless, it's a nice looking building, sure. admittedly. And, of course, the Petroleum Club is on the ninth floor and the Pachyderm meets there on Friday, Fridays at noon. And I, and I like to go there. I'm not there all the time, but I do like to go because there's always interesting speakers there. Sure. But having said that, they act like we're moving up. You know, this is such a beautiful building. Bear in mind, my office will be about half the size it is currently. Right. And on it goes. I mean, there's, there is not. Uh, I, I would say this is a, uh, a space we're not going to be comfortable in, which right. is good. I don't want to be. Com- I don't want to be comfortable. Right. Uh, so this is not really a step up in terms of our facility space. This is actually a step down, and uh, that might motivate motivate us to actually find that permanent spot. I hope so. I mean, I'm glad you guys are having the discussion. I can definitely see the sense of we need the nicest, greatest, glamorous stuff and spend all this money. But that's our taxpayer money. And uh, inflation sitting at, what, 7 7.5% right now. Things are already more expensive. If the government came out, county government came out and said, we're going to spend all this money to build a brand new building. It's going to be nice and, you know, suave. I don't know how many people are like, oh, wow, that's a proper use of our taxpayer money. I just don't see that happening. Can you imagine if I put that on the ballot and had people vote for this? You want to build a brand new government building that to cost $50 million? Yeah. yeah. I don't think it's going to pass. Yeah, so yeah, if, that, I, if we don't think it's going to pass, why would I vote for that? Exactly. Exactly. Let's take a break here. 20 minutes past the hour. When we come back, we'll shift gears a little bit. I'm glad you guys are having the conversation. And you're right. Maybe the temporary sitting in a building may kind of light the fire to find something permanent. But... We'll see what happens there. When we come back, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about COVID, where we're at with the county. Um, COVID numbers, I saw the headline showing that uh, the hospitals here in Cedric County are saying they're not in crisis mode right now. I find that interesting. What changed? Because the numbers haven't changed on cases around. So we'll do that when we come back. Plus, we'll talk about some other stuff going on with the county at Cedric County Commissioner Jim Howell. When we come back, your phone calls as well at 316-721-8255, 316-721-TALK. It's Kansas Talk right here on the Big Talker, KQAM. Five minutes past the hour. Welcome back into Kansas Talk right here on the Big Talker KQAM. Thanks for hanging out with us here on a Saturday morning, hanging out with Cedric County Commissioner Jim Howell. Let's talk about COVID for a second. There is a headline on Drudge Report, which Drudge, they've completely gone wackadoodle. They've gone far to the left. I don't pay attention to them a whole lot, but they've consistently had on here these 
updated current COVID-19 cases and COVID-19 deaths nationally, where year over year from 2021 to 2022, we are up right now as of February 18th from yesterday. Last year, we had 71,000 cases by now. This year, we have 109,000 cases. Deaths are a little bit lower, 2,600 from last year to 2,400 from this year. So far for the beginning of the year. Now, again, these numbers are skewed. They're manipulated. They're not accurate. And I can explain why later. We've talked about it before. But then just in the last week or so, we've also had the Biden administration say how they're going to change uh, how they count hospitalizations in cases which makes sense. I mean, hospitalizations before it was, if you got in the hospital with COVID, you would still be counted as a COVID case of being hospitalized for. They've changed it to now you have to be hospitalized for COVID specifically instead of just having it when you test positive when you actually go into the hospital. Cases, surprisingly, starting to drop. Now we have, according to Cake News, that hospitals here in the area are a little bit more stable, not in crisis mode. From what you've heard, why all the change? Obviously, with these numbers nationally, the cases are higher from this point last year, and deaths are right around the same, and I use that in air quotes with COVID-19 deaths. The deaths are relatively the same, so why all of a sudden are we not in crisis mode and things opening up and we're just getting back to normal now? I kind of find that interesting. You ask great questions. <laughs> why, oh, why would, I mean, if the numbers are the same and the cases are actually higher, you'd think they'd be locking things down even more. Be like, oh, it's not working. More social distancing. You know, it's funny. Since... This last surge we had, we talked about the Omicron variant. It just and it just showed up. Think about this around Thanksgiving or so. Sure, it wasn't very long ago, and we saw a spike. I mean, as it came as it came across the nation, if you look at our Sedgwick County data, that as our data, our case numbers spiked incredibly. And this is despite the fact that people basically think about our vaccination rate we have right now versus what we had back then. It's actually not changed very much. Sure. Our vaccination rate is maybe slightly better today than it was then. Some people, because this Omicron did get vaccinated, but the reality is that spike happened despite the, you know, despite our vaccination rates, it spike happened regardless. Well, because Omicron was immune to the vaccine. That was the big scare was that that one wasn't going to be stopped by the vaccine. Well, and it's also, you know, with all this education that people have had about wearing masks and hand hygiene and social distancing and gatherings and all that. People kind of just did what they wanted to do, and this, yeah. this spike did happen. But I, there's, there, but I know people who were actually almost in isolation. They also got Omicron. Sure. The hospitals saw a pretty good spike as well. But let me just tell you some numbers real quickly. And I, and I, and I actually, I actually do not like the positivity rate calculation because we're actually giving you a number based on who's not, who doesn't have COVID. Right. Yeah. It's that's really what drives the number. <laughs> so if testing goes down, for example, we might have. Very small case numbers. And you can see this. If you, we actually have two charts on our, on our website, on our dashboard. One is the positivity rate, but the other ones are case numbers. The case number chart is actually the most interesting. But our, our, our positivity rate has dropped literally in half in the last 14 days. It went from 16%, 8.2% in six, actually in 14 days. So it's actually dropped in half right. in the last 14 days. And that's a rolling average. So it's actually better than... Our, if you looked at our snapshot today, our, day, our daily rate is much lower than 8.2%. Sure. And our uh, case count in the last, uh, in the last uh, well, I'll just say, so I didn't look at it where, where it was 14 days ago, but it was, it was way high compared to what we have now. Yeah. In the last, the last day or so, we've only had 116 cases reported in Sedgwick County. 
compared to what we've had, we've had up over a thousand. Sure, uh, but again, during, during, during this during this peak. Yeah, but again, that's that's testing rate as well. If people aren't showing up to get tested, then you're getting a smaller sample, so therefore the numbers are going to be skewed. Let's continue that when we come back. We got to take a hard break for the bottom of the hour here, okay. but uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's all just numbers based on what you have. But if you get a smaller sample of the ocean, you're going to find less of what's actually in the ocean, which right. is uh, which is the point we've been trying to make this entire time for the pandemic. You could uh, you could do 20 percent of the population uh, doing testing, and yet we still wouldn't get an accurate number because the 80 percent that's not showing Going up to do testing. It doesn't work. We'll do that when we come back here. It's Candace Talk right here on the Big Talker KQM. Stay here. Talk with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back into Kansas Talk. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Saturday morning, ready to rock and roll for another weekend. Got people jumping on, which, by the way, you can watch the video live stream on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash 1480KQAM. Hour number two, U.S. Senator Roger Marshall. We'll play that interview we did with him just a couple of days ago. Plus, we have our chat, our monthly chat with uh, Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt. So, big hour number two. Plus, I have not forgotten at the end of this break, maybe, hint, hint, wink, wink. We'll get you set up and get you some tickets to Disney on Ice coming to Interest Bank Arena on March 10th through the 13th right here in Wichita. They come about once a year, but sometimes twice a year, I think. So great show, great performance. Bring the kiddos and have a good time. Lots to get to right now. We're hanging out with Sedgwick County Commissioner Jim Howell as we talk about some of the COVID-19 cases. Again, we made the statement that right now we're in a political season. So, of course, everything changes. The political mindset changes. We have Democrat states that are getting rid of mask mandates. We have uh, cities and counties and states all over that are starting to deregulate. The Biden administration has now been like, oh, yeah, numbers are doing great. You guys do a good job. We're just going to start doing a hands-off approach here. Fauci says we're on the tail end of this stuff as well. Which I find fascinating because, again, the numbers show that we still, you know, overall have higher numbers than last year by this point in the year. We're right about matching with the number of deaths, which I use, again, air quotes, because they're recalculating what these deaths and and hospitalizations actually look like. Um, Did you die from COVID or did you die just with a positive test of COVID, but it was asymptomatic and you had stage four lung cancer? You know, here's those are the questions that we have to start asking ourselves because we've been I guess you can say bamboozled, I guess, for a while about some of these numbers just for the money. So, unfortunately, I know we had we had a special uh, meeting this week from the USD 259, didn't we? Uh, they actually on, had, on to, they had to postpone it because of the They snow. did postpone it. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Okay, that's right. But they were talking about that one. So, we have some of the holdouts with school districts that are just kind of lingering on with some of these mandates. Uh, but why do you think that we're starting to deregulate statewide, nationally, on this when the cases are really right about where they were. You know, it's, it's, I'll tell you what it is, Andy. It's, it's about, um, I, I think the jig is up, first of all. <laughs> they can't continue the political game we've been playing yeah. because the data doesn't support it any longer. And they, they all know it. I think the, the answer is they realize that they are losing their narrative. They've got to act like we've, we've, we've solved the problem and uh, we can now <clears throat> go back to normal because we said so. Right. It's time for, we're, we're telling you now, it's time to go back to normal because we're in control of your decisions. Exactly. They know that people are going to go back to normal anyway. People have already, looked. I watched the Super Bowl and I looked at that. How many people were at that, in that stadium? Oh, it was massive, yeah. It had to be 100,000 people, I guess. I don't know, but it was, sure. it was unbelievable. And, and virtually nobody was wearing a mask. Right. But you know what? There's events here just like that. 
we're, we're going to events in our own state. You know, they're extremely packed. And mm-hmm. the, real, the reality is people have moved on. They, they've lost. Uh, tr- they don't trust their government anymore. I think the, uh, the issue that this is about, it's about more about politics and control. And I think the people know that now, maybe more than they ever have. And I think the government's realizing it, too. And they're like, oh, wait, we can't control the narrative anymore. And when people start to do their own things, then the only way to stay in control is to say, well, we're allowing you to do that because what you've done is That's worked. exactly what's going on. Yeah. That is, you know, it reminds me of, first, I don't know why I just thought of this, but it reminds me of The Matrix. Yes. When he sits down on the chair and they say, we're going to tell you something that's going to be hard to believe. What, would, what if everything you've been told is a lie? You know, that everything that you thought was real right. was actually just a facade, so to speak. Exactly. Here's what's really going on. And they said, we're going to expose this. We're going to show you. Your eyes will be, you know, once you see it, you'll never, you'll never be able to go back. <laughs> Remember that? Yep. That's what this is. I think the reality is people at the beginning, they wanted to trust their government. They wanted to trust that the government was really trying to help people. Sure. Uh, at the end of the day, I hey, look, and I would give us a bit of a, an excuse or a bit of an out saying, that we did not really know. We have not dealt with something like this before, and we did not know. I think initially it really was a pure effort, although I didn't agree with what they tried to do when they tried to do it. Right. I was actually, uh, as you know, fighting against a overreaction at the beginning of this whole thing, and I, I have always been the one that's kind of gone back to my Republican principles of individual responsibility, uh, education, and trusting our people to make the best decisions for themselves. Sure. Those are the right principles. I've always been there. And when the government starts trying to make decisions for us, which they did from the very beginning, again, I'll give them a bit, a bit of an out. I know they, they were well-intentioned. They really, I think, in a pure sense, they believed their message was right, although I disagree with their message. I'll give them that out, but it's clearly not that anymore. Now it's about control. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. I think even the government now realizes, blue states, Laura Kelly, they understand that if we don't actually get ahead of this message and actually tell people what they already know, <laughs> we're, they're going to, we're going to lose all credibility, which I think they already have anyway. Yeah. Which is why Kelly really changed her tone on, you know, yes, mask mandates, yes, enforcement, yes, social distancing, yes, shut down things. And then when it came to the vaccines, well, no, let states make their own decisions and we don't need to do an enforcement on mandated vaccines in the state of Kansas. She changed the tone just like that. And I think it was because it's election season. It's an extremely unpopular position, especially for a rural state like Kansas, and it wasn't going to fly here. And she knew that going into a re-election. Let me say one thing here: the one I asked someone asked me yesterday, well, what do we, what do we, what have we learned in this pandemic? I think it's actually really obvious now. The government has actually, hopefully, leaders, elected leaders, have learned one thing: it's best to be honest with the people, show them respect, yeah. educate them honestly, tell them both sides of all the. Don't sell them a used car. Tell them everything about the issue. Let them make decisions on their own for their medical their medical choices, uh, the, the the things that make decisions on how to, how to protect themselves. Those decisions belong with the people. And when you try to control people by giving them spin, what happens is they lose eventually they lose uh, they lose respect for us, the messenger, and the people. The government also uh, the people also understand that we don't respect them. Right. So the respect is completely broken because we don't. Uh, actually trust the people. So uh, the one message I would say is this, let's not do that again. If we ever have a reason to, you know, we have some emer- uh, statewide emergency or nationwide emergency again, the best thing we can do is explain to people everything there is to know about that and expect them to be smart. I think actually at the end of the day, people are way smarter than the government gives them credit for. 
Well, and that's the problem. You're right. I mean, we just want to hear all the information, all the ins and outs, all the goods and bads, everything going on, and then we'll make our own decisions based on our own personal needs. And that's why people no longer trust the government is because we did not get that. They told us this is the one way. This is the only thing you have to do. You must be very afraid. And then at the same time, other things were going on that contradicted that. We challenged it. They got angry about us challenging it when they didn't release all the information. Just tell us everything and then fall back to the constitutional principles that you cannot impose will on us. You cannot impose tyranny on us just because it's for the quote-unquote public health or the general common good or whatever crap they try to use there. Give us all the information, everything, and then just say, have at it, do your own thing now. That's right. And then if you did that, I would respect you more and I would trust you a little bit more as opposed to now I don't. I would never listen to what the FDA or the NIH or uh, anybody else at the federal government and health experts have to say about anything. I just don't care what they have to say. I hope we learned our lesson. And yeah. uh, again, I I feel like I've been on the right side of this from the very beginning. I have I have made some mistakes, and uh, at the end of the day, I think we're all smarter, we're all better. And but the, but the American people, the citizens we serve, they are smart, and yeah. we we really need to respect them and trust them, educate them with all the information, give the total truth, and then trust them to make the best decisions for themselves, and live with the consequences. By the way, because yeah. you know what, with, with freedom comes responsibility. And uh, so the, these principles, these, these Republican values, these principles, they apply to this too. And uh, we shouldn't, we should have never acted like the government is the parent. That that's we <laughs> made huge mistakes. Life when lessons. When we start going down that path. Yeah, life lessons. We got just a few minutes here before we have to kind of wrap it up. But let's talk about the other major issue that you had mentioned is uh, voter integrity, the elections. We're going into a midterm, which is obviously a major thing. We went off an election where people were very upset and were concerned about what was going on. There is this kind of a heads up and kind of a PSA. We'll talk about it a little bit more in depth later. But there is an event coming up in April, early April, I believe, with uh, Chris Kobach running for attorney general and Mike Lindell uh, with My Pillow, who's really fronted some of the uh, election integrity stuff around the country and i've i've listened to his speeches i've i've been interested yet step skeptical about some of the stuff he said but it's going to be a big event and this is still focused front and center on people's minds if we show up to the polls is it really going to matter and is it actually going to change uh and actually be uh accurate when we actually cast our ballot you've actually been speaking on this and focused a lot of attention on this as well what have you seen well i can tell you right now I talk about what are the hot topics. Uh, there's probably nothing hotter. I mean, this is way hotter than, than COVID right now, believe it or not. This is probably the hottest topic of all topics. And I'm, I mentioned the legislature earlier. The legislature has got dozens of bills, and they've had lots of hearings on election security. And um, I can tell you, it's a pretty big deal. People want to, I guess, there is a lot of people right now that don't trust the election process. And so... My message has been this. First of all, I don't want to you know, downplay what we've observed in other states. I, I do think that there's things in those states that need to be answered. Sure. Whether there's actual fraud or not, that's, investigations need to uncover those truths. And if they have uh, done things wrong or if they have things that look wrong, they need, to, they, need to, they need to shore that up in those other states. And the electors of those other states really need to drive that in those states. Right. But what you see in other states doesn't necessarily apply to Kansas. We have, I think, some of the better laws. Now, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the arguments made against Kansas during the hearing <clears throat> from some of the people who were very concerned about election security, they said, well, Kansas only scored a 69 on the Heritage Foundation's election integrity scale. Mm. And 69, well, that sounds like, well, that's, that's bad. That's a D plus. You know, we, we fail. Right. Um, 
well, we're not an F, but I guess we're pretty close to an F anyway. Um, I went back and looked at the reasons why they down, downgraded Kansas. First of all, the best state in the nation it only gets like an 83. Uh, the worst state in the nation gets like a, it's in the 20s, like 20, 28 or 29. Interesting. So uh, we get a 69. Some of the things they graded Kansas on, actually, they apparently misunderstand our own. They misunderstand Kansas. They actually took points away for things we actually, we actually do the way that they think we should do them. Some of the things they advocate for are actually not even legal. For example, we passed a, uh, a Safe and Secure Elections, uh, Secure Elections Act uh, back in 2011. In fact, Chris Kobach was the, was the creator of that law. I right. voted for it when I was in the legislature. Part of that bill, part of that law was uh, citizenship verification when you register to vote. Well, that's been thrown out by the courts. And so they give us, they took away like three points on our scale because yeah. we can't, we don't certify, we don't verify citizenship when people register to vote. Well, we tried. We tried, yeah. So why give us, why are you downgrading us for something we have no control over? <laughs> that's just one example. But at the end of the day, I am, I am concerned about election security in Kansas, but here's the deal. Many of the things that they raise as concerns about Kansas, actually, there's really good answers for. There's reasons why our poll books are on a server. Our poll books, but our poll books is not voting. That just wants to make sure you know who has the right to vote. But they not they have not already voted in this election cycle. They did not request a mail ballot. And so, if you go to advanced voting, which again we're all used to advanced voting now, and you check in to vote in one place, they have to know down the street that you already voted someplace else. Yeah. So by by advanced voting drives a need for these to be interconnected. So if you want to get rid of the interconnection, then you can't have advanced voting. So we have to decide, as a state, do we want advanced voting or not? But you can't have it both ways. Sure. Because if you don't have those interconnected, then you create a, an option for someone to possibly vote more than one time. So the question is, is that system, is it secure? And I could, I could talk about this all day. I think it is secure. Some people have questions about its security. Yeah. So, again, we can answer those questions. If we can find vulnerabilities, let's, let's fix that or let's get rid of those vulnerabilities by changing our system. Sure. One of the uh, takeaways, they said, let's vote, let's vote uh, Amish. That's one of the words they use. And what they mean by that is they want us to vote on paper, which, by the way, we do vote on paper, but they also want to hand count the ballots. And so I actually had a bit of an exercise where I actually I created a couple of mock ballots, uh, two ballot styles representing two precincts, if you will. And I did, I did a bit, bit of a mock election. I had 23 races on my ballots. They weren't the same because, as you know, ballot styles change from one location to the next. Right. Your address and my address are not the same. Yeah. So I had everybody essentially fill out the ballots. First thing I noticed was and everybody filled out the ballots differently. Some people, mm-hmm. fill, uh, they filled in the bubbles correctly. Some people actually put an X in the bubbles, for example. And in the real world, we know people actually sometimes they circle the names or they cross through some names. Right. Or they write names next to it. So voting by paper actually is not, is not as consistent as we would like. And then you go to actually tabulate those ballots. It's a very arduous process. Sure. And you sit down and actually have a stack of ballots to say 40 ballots and say, tell me the results on these 40 ballots. It's a lot harder than it sounds. It's going to take some it time, takes a, yeah. Now imagine we actually have 300,000 300, ballots in, in Sedgwick County. Right. We have 400 ballot styles and 43 races. Yeah. It's much more arduous than you can even, even imagine. So if you wanted to not get results for two, three months, that may be a good process. <laughs> That's the way to do it, yeah. But do you trust the results then either? I don't know if I trust the results. So the, our processes can be verified, it can be validated, it can be, it can be checked, it can be audited. Sure. And I think that gives me some assurance. But we need to understand that process. 
I think there is an education side of it where we could educate people on how the process is done, make them feel a little more comfortable. And if they want to do that, then they can be involved. They can be the watchers. They can be the poll watchers, do stuff, understand the system a little bit more. And I think just the uncertainty of unknowing how the process works is how they get to the conclusion of, well, we don't know whether it's secure or not. And I think that's one part of it. Not to say there's not fraud, because I think there always is fraud personally. It's just whether it's enough to swing elections or not is the big question. We're out of time, my friend. We got lots more to talk about. We got to get you back in here more frequently than just every couple of months. So I would love that. Thanks for the chance to see Yeah, again. always good to talk to you. Jim Howell, Sedgwick County Commissioner. When we come back, we have our AARP update wrapping up this hour. We also have our giveaway. We ran out of time here. I promise you we will get you tickets for Disney on Ice. Hang tight for that one. Lots more coming up here on Kansas Talk here on the Big Talker KQAM on a Saturday morning. Stay here. Well, there's the Fraud Watch Network Retirement Calculator getting involved in the community. Make sure to check them out online at aarp.org slash ks for the state of Kansas. You can also find them and follow them on their social media as well. Glenda back on the line with us again this week. Glenda, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. Good. It's always good to talk with you. Let's talk about some big headlines that are going on. We always talk about the Fraud Watch Network, which there's always a a lot of fraud going on, unfortunately. But uh, for individuals that are looking to save for retirement, planning for retirement, trying to prepare for the retirement, it seems to be getting more difficult every day to do so as a younger individual that's not quite at that level yet. But there's still opportunity to do so, is there not? Yes, there is. There, there's, there is an opportunity, and AARP is really actively proposing and supporting um, the Work and Save program. Um, this program would really provide help for Kansas to employees to save for their retirement. It provides that option. And what we're doing now is following the results of a poll that shows that businesses, small businesses, agree that lawmakers should really support Kansas retirement savings options, the Work and Save. Uh, and about one in five, or about 81% of the uh, state, our small businesses agree that this should happen. Mm, I love it. So talk about this legislation. What is it and what would it do for individuals? Well, what this does, again, it shows that it would address uh, the more than 423,000 workers uh, that work for an employer that does not offer a way to save for retirement mm. uh, at work. And so to do this, we're advocating for this legislation that would provide a uh, an opportunity. It's House Bill 2586 that would allow the savings to be set aside through our state treasurer's office and a private judiciary company that would actually work to uh, allow the uh, employees to put money into this retirement account. It's a retirement account for their future use, which would provide a way for them to have stability, improve their quality of life. They would not have, if they, they would not have to uh, depend upon social security only, they would be able to have uh, uh, savings from a pension or from, not from a pension, but from this retirement uh, plan that they would be able to look forward to uh, reaping the benefits um, when they retire. Yeah. Yeah. Actually have a little bit of money set aside. I've read so many stats. Yeah. I've read so many stats lately that the younger generation, I mean, my generation, I'm 33, the the number of individuals that uh, don't save for retirement and that go into retirement age with nothing set aside. That's a really scary thought. Yes. 
Absolutely, and that's really over uh, half of our um, employees here in the Kansas Air, Kansas State. So it's a really good number of people, you know, of all ages uh, that that really are working in jobs that may not be able to, or working on their own, where their employer may not be able to provide that for them now, it allows that option for them to set those monies aside for retirement and give them a better quality of life. Mm, That's going to be amazing. Once this passes, hopefully it does pass and everything happens, what would be the steps for the employee or the employer to take? Obviously, if the employer is going to set something like this up, it, it should be, it seems like a very simple process for employees to just take advantage of the program. It would be a process, absolutely, working with the state treasurer's office to get that set up and working with their employers, uh, employees. And it's not mandatory. That's one thing. It's not mandatory. So those that elect to do it, they would work with their employers to uh, to get that set up for them through uh, the state treasurer's office. Oh, yes. I love it. That's going to be a great opportunity. Uh, with That might give actually some incentive as well for individuals to maybe want to stay in the state as well as we see a lot of the younger generation wanting to leave the state. You know, absolutely. That is one uh, benefit of this is because it allows people to have a more secure uh, future here in um, in Kansas, and it would definitely strengthen our economy and our uh, base of employees going forward. Absolutely. Sure. Very good. Talk about some of the other stuff that's going on with the AARP. You guys always have a lot of webinars, a lot of great information or just entertainment things, but what else are you guys working on? Yes. Well, we always have the... Um, Fraud Watch program going on, and for people to remain absolutely aware of that, elder abuse and scams and those kinds of things that we need to be aware of, but also uh, the movies for grown-ups are still out there to be um, enjoyed by going to aarp.org, uh, but also uh, going to aarp.org uh, slash Kansas, we can certainly find the uh, Black Creatures concert that's coming up on February 25th. So there's a lot of good things that's going out there to keep people more, um, to keep them involved and engaged. Sure. A and lot. to do that virtually in the midst of COVID. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Even with people still staying at home, there's uh, always uh, some opportunity for entertainment that you guys have uh, with your social media and your websites. Again, if people want to reach out to you, yes. how can they do so? They can do so by going to aarp.org slash Kansas. For Kansas. I love it. Plus the social media, follow them as well on there. Glenda, so, we appreciate yeah. Absolutely. 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 Glenda, we appreciate the time very much. We look forward to it again next week. Thank you so much, Andy. There it is, hour number one of Kansas Talk All Wrapped Up. Goes by way too fast. Hour number two right around the corner. Lots more to get to. Open lines to you. We'll do some giveaways. We'll have some fun. We'll just do the thing like we do every Saturday here on Kansas Talk. Stay here on KQAM. This is Kansas Talk with Andy Hoosier on the Big Talker KQAM. Hey, welcome into Kansas Talk. It's hour number two of Kansas Talk right here on the Big Talker, 1480 AM, 102.5 FM KQAM. Thanks for hanging out with us today here on... A Saturday morning, trying to get you up and moving for the day. Thanks again to Jim Howell, Sedgwick County Commissioner, coming on the program in hour number one. Great information. We have not talked to him in a while, so it was good to get an update from the county. Lots of things to talk about there, and uh, we didn't get to a lot of it, so we'll get him back on the show here relatively soon. Big hour number two as well. We have, uh, in just a little bit here, in a few minutes, we'll play our interview with U.S. Senator Roger Marshall. We got a few minutes with him earlier this week, and we played it during our national broadcast with the Voice of Reason, but I want you to hear it as well, talking about some of the Kansas issues and what he's been working on. I tell you what, I am so happy that U.S. Senator Roger Marshall is in as the U.S. Senator 
in the state of Kansas. He is a fireball. He is uh, now up to the level of near like Rand Paul on the whole exposing Fauci with all the shenanigans that are going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's doing great. So we'll uh, play that interview coming up here in just a few minutes. Also, we have at the bottom of the hour, uh, Derek Schmidt, Kansas Attorney General, talking about some legal issues here in the state as well. All of it presented by Phil's Coins, 9344 West Central Avenue, buying, selling, and trading with honesty and integrity for all your gold and silver needs. Make sure to check out Phil's Coins. They are open right now until 2.30 this afternoon for a Saturday. They are closed on Sundays and Mondays, open on Tuesday through Saturday. And you can also find them online at philscoins.com. Open lines to you at 316-721-8255, 316-721-TALK. Real quickly here, there is there is a chart that was released for the state of Kansas that I think is kind of interesting. There was a chart for the largest age groups by county in the state. And as I look at it, I am extremely concerned about the future of the state of Kansas. As you know, we've had the redistricting with the congressional seats here in the state because of population changes in the U.S. Census. And uh, we're starting to chip into the third district where Sharice Davids is. And Democrats really have a stronghold in Johnson County and in Wyandotte County and some of these uh, up near the Kansas City area that are a little bit more progressive. And because of the population increase there and a lack of increase of population in other parts of the state, then part of those districts are going into other districts, including the big first district, the big red first, which is usually like the western half of the state of Kansas. That's starting to trickle into that area. What does that mean? It means right now for the short term, we potentially could have uh, a little bit larger say with more Republicans and we could potentially swing that third district uh, because of chipping into theirs that uh, is taking some of the progressive areas into the big red first. The bad part is, is that now we're going to have a little bit more of a battle in the first district and others as well, where we could have a little bit more moderate candidates popping up because of the fact that we have a little bit more of a Democrat voter base in these districts that could sway elections. There's one. There's a major issue here, though, that's uh, going to be a concern for maybe not necessarily right now, but in the next few years moving forward. We need to start addressing this as Kansans pretty drastically. There was the uh, so there was a chart showing the largest age group in each county, and this is as of 2020 uh, for the census just two years ago, and just about all of the rural counties across the entire state of Kansas, the largest age group was the 70 plus age group. Now, while that sounds fine and okay, that's great. It's a rural community. Of course, there's going to be a little bit uh, older individuals there. Maybe they still run the farms, maybe they, whatever. When that age population goes away with the 70 plus what's left there in those counties, the population size is going to dramatically increase, uh, decrease, we're going to have younger individuals that aren't really there, and the larger populated areas are going to start consuming the rest of the state. The conservative views of, state, of the state of Kansas could be drastically changed here very, very quickly. Now, here in Sedgwick County, the largest age group was the 20 to 29, which is very fascinating to me, uh, along with uh, Riley County and Lyons County and Douglas County up near the Kansas City area, and then over on the northwestern part of the state with Thomas County. Uh, the 20 to 29 age group was the most highly populated. Then we have in some of the obviously other areas as well where we have, uh, I'm trying to find it here. Hold on. We got to find kind of the, uh, the more progressive areas. They're all the younger demos. Anywhere between 30 to 39, a little bit of 50 to 59 in some of those in Jefferson County. 
But the older population, the 70 plus is what's concerning to me because when that population goes away, that is two thirds of the counties in the state of Kansas right now that are most likely holding on to more of the Republican conservative valued principled individual ideas. And if they're the largest population, what happens when that population goes away and it's a new generation that's coming up that may not have that those ideals or the populations decrease so much that they don't have much of a voice at all in the electoral system because the largely populated areas obviously are dominating. We saw a prime example of that going into the general or the governor's race just the last time with Governor Kelly out of however many, what, 105 counties in the state, 102, 105, whatever it is in the state of Kansas, she won seven. Seven! Out of, out of the 100-plus in the state of Kansas, seven counties because of the large population, which is goes back to my idea where we need to be pushing for an electoral college at the statewide level like we do electoral college uh, votes at the national level for presidential races. We need to start looking at this because when the two-thirds of counties across the, st- uh, across the state of Kansas are 70-plus age groups, to me, that's a little concerning. I am a little worried about that. Your thoughts, 316 316-721-8255, 316-721-TALK. What do we do to fix that issue? Do we entice younger generations to stay on the home uh, home front and stay on the farm? Do we start creating more incentives for them there? How do we bring the younger generations back with those conservative values, with those down-home values that they have to represent for when that 70-plus age group goes away that we don't see a political shift drastically in the state? Because uh, you know, you know progressives are just waiting for that to happen. You know Democrats are just waiting, like, all right, you know, they may have the supermajority now in the state legislature. You just wait about 10 years, and we're going to be talking about a whole different story here. It's on their mind, and we need to be addressing this as well. What do we do to preserve conservatism in Kansas? Let's go to the phones. We have the lines lit up, so let's go right to them. Line number one. Good morning. Who's this? This is Frederick. Frederick, how are you, sir? I'm fine. How are you? I am. am, Oh, I'm living the dream. We're having more fun than we should be every day. Beautiful. Hey, um, as far um, back back in when I was working for a larger company, um, uh, actually it was a, a, a food company. I used to go out into rural um, Kansas and call on grocery stores and et cetera like that. But during the past thirty to forty years, uh, as the younger people are moving, like to Wichita and Hutchison and other towns like that. The grocery stores are disappearing. The drug stores are disappearing. The places where people can actually work are disappearing. So actually, what you have out there, you have nothing but corporate farms mm-hmm. and very few people except old people living out there. Yeah. And so um, it's going to continue, and we're going to end up with nothing but corporate farms and a bunch of old people out there in the, um, in the state of Kansas and all the young people, because there's jobs here, there's uh, grocery stores here. Oh, it's way more convenient. It's a joke about yeah. the grocery stores, yes. But, um, Andy, yeah, it's going to take place. It's going to happen. How do you change it? You have to, uh, I don't know. But if you go to a lot of these smaller um, towns like Harper, Kansas, for instance, uh, they're down to one grocery store. <laughs> Clearwater is down to one grocery store. A lot of those, uh, in fact, possibly where you come from, up in the mountains of Colorado, I don't know how many grocery stores are left up there. But unless you have grocery stores, unless you have a place for them to go to work and other activities, 
uh, it's going to continue to shrink. And that's yeah. just the fact of life. Well, and it is very scary because you're right. I mean, we are centralizing ourselves into largely populated areas for the opportunities and for the convenience in those rural areas. They are dying off, which in the long term, progressives, that's what they've wanted. They've wanted us out of those areas. They want nat- nature to take its course, do its thing. How dare we you know, live out there in, in uh, the wilderness? And we need to be concentrated in the largely populated areas. And when that happens, that's where liberal, progressive, socialist ideals breed, and they have the stronghold over those populated areas, which means they're going to dominate the political views in the next 20 to 30 years unless we do something pretty drastically. That is correct. And out there um, in these smaller communities, they're losing their local um, um, elementary schools, high schools, intermediate schools. They're losing them every um, every year, and what they're trying to do is consolidate them to on some of the larger cities. And what you have is a bunch of kids being picked up on buses and bus 30 or 40 miles to a school. So once you lose the school, yeah. you have lost the communities. And those smaller communities are losing their schools, and that's just the way it's going to be. It's just going to continue down that route. It's very sad. It's very sad. Frederick, I appreciate it, my friend. You're, you're absolutely right. We got something to address there, and we have to fix it uh, here pretty soon. So I love it. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend, and I'm sure we will chat with you again here soon. Uh, before we run out of time, I don't want to miss the opportunity, so let's go ahead and do this right now. To infinity and beyond. Let it go. Let it go. Hey, it's okay. It's okay. You're welcome. Call now. 721-8255 on KQAM. There it is. All right. Give us a call. 316-721-8255. 316-721-TALK. I'm going to clear those lines from the other calls. Call back and we'll talk to you here again soon about your issues. I don't want to let you go, but I want to get these out here. It is time. Disney on Ice back in Wichita Interest Bank Arena, March 10th through the 13th for the Big Dream Tour. I think this one's focused on Moana. If you have not seen Moana, honestly, as a dad, with a little one, seven-year-old, that's one of my favorite ones. I enjoyed that one immensely. But uh, you'll see Moana, Coco, Ariel, Frozen, Aladdin, and a heck of a lot more. And uh, right now, let's do caller number two at 316 316-721-talk will get you a pair of uh, tickets, a four-pack, not a pair, but a four-pack of tickets for you and the family to go and watch uh, Disney on Ice at Interest Bank Arena on March 10th through the 13th right here on KQAM. Stay here. All right, welcome back into the program. We got our winner today, at least right now. I think we'll do one before the end of the hour again for the Disney on Ice tickets. Get you a four-pack of those, so we appreciate your callers. We'll uh, get uh, some more here in just a minute. But let's shift gears a little bit, and let's play our interview that we had earlier this week with U.S. Senator Roger Marshall. Senator, how are you, my friend? Andy, great to talk to you, and you're right. We're up here fighting for Kansans, fighting to protect our constitutional rights, fighting to... uh, Get mask off kids and allow people to go back to work and to live a live their own life. So I, we're we're up here working hard. Yeah, getting things back up to normal. I have to say that you've really put uh, Dr. Fauci on the hot spot the last few months with uh, uh, between what he's been making with some of his investments and his salary that wasn't public knowledge that he said that it was. Uh, not to mention now with some of the emails that you've been able to disclose talking about the the, the censorship of the whole Wuhan lab incident that's happened uh, since really the beginning of the pandemic, things are starting to unfold with this whole issue. Right, right, Andy. And this is not personal with Dr. Fauci, but he was involved in a massive cover-up. In January of 2020, scientists overriding him saying, look, we think this is from a laboratory in Wuhan. He has a secret meeting on February the 1st, and then suddenly these same scientists changed their mind. 
uh, and say there's no way it could have come from a laboratory in Wuhan. And then coincidentally, over the next two years, those same scientists received $3 billion of grants and funding from Dr. Fauci and the NIH. So uh, th- there is a massive cover-up going on, and we're going to get to the bottom of it. It is unfortunate. It really makes us distrust all the information that we've heard over the last two years when it comes to COVID, whether it's the masks or the vaccines or the social distancing or the case numbers that we've heard. I mean, uh, we just heard the Biden administration last week say that they want to recalculate the number of hospitalizations and deaths in the nation. That really makes us skeptical. And it's unfortunate when we have an actual pandemic with a health issue, we want to get the true information here. Right, Andy. And I think to your point is America is ready to turn the page. The CDC has lost the reputation. There's nothing they can do to get it back now. But talking to, Amer- to Americans, the Kansans, doing town halls, Kansans are ready to move on. And that's why we're introducing legislation this week to stop the emergency declaration uh, on, on COVID and take some of the power away from Dr. Fauci and away from the president. If you think about what this emergency declaration does, it empowers them to continue to fearmonger. It continues to empower them to print money, to drive up inflation to pay people more to stay at home than to go back to work. And I know Kansans' heads are just exploding as they see this inflation gripping the nation. And, and again, so frustrated to see people that could be back in the workforce, but, but uh, Biden wants to pay them eighty, ninety, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 a year to not work. And it just exacerbates the supply chain bottlenecks that we see already. Yeah, it's an ongoing issue that we need to deal with at some point here. Now, you mentioned with the ending of this COVID, uh, with the legislation like this, do you think that Democrats will get on board? Many states are taking matters into their own hands, Democrat states, because they realize elections are coming up and it's an unpopular thing to still have these mandates. Do you think that the end of the declaration is going to happen here? Well, I'm afraid that Joe Biden wants to continue it. Uh, If you listen to him talk, he's right in there saying, oh, my gosh, it's uh, let, let's let's keep it going because again he wants control he wants power but I'm begging them to look at the science 95 percent of Americans have some level of immunity uh, the number of new cases is 10 percent today what it was uh, at, at the peak of this Omicron uh, virus we've got decent amount of therapeutics out there I don't see any horrible variant on the horizon versus we knew a couple months before Delta got here. We knew a couple months before Omicron got here, we saw it ripping across Europe and and Africa. So I don't see anything like that out there. Uh, For the sake of this nation, we need to return back to normal. And again, the president wants to do everything he can to take your mind off of inflation, which he's responsible for. So if we get rid of this declaration of emergency, I think we can start addressing some of the inflation issues. That was going to be my next question with this inflation rate. I mean, we're seeing six and a half, seven, seven and a half percent inflation year over year, which is absolutely insane. I mean, we're going back to the Jimmy Carter eras here and uh, ending the declaration is going to be one big major step. Getting people back to work is going to be one big major step. But could we see inflation lower by the end of the year? Because I'm hearing that we couldn't even see it lower until maybe next year or the year after. Well, Andy, I'm afraid we've got a year of inflation. Uh, maybe it'll stabilize and not be increasing as much, but inflation is going to be here for a good year, if not longer. And you know, just to bring it home, uh, I've got four children, uh, three grandsons, and one on the way here. And three of my four kids have called me in the past week saying, Dad, I can't believe my utility bill has doubled. <laughs> Dad, uh, I can't find an apartment, and they're so expensive uh, to, to rent. There's just not even any available. Or, or Dad, can you, do you know how much gasoline is at the pump? Uh, so, it, so this is a Biden tax. Inflation is a Biden tax created by Joe Biden's policy. 
the average American family is $275 tax each month right now. And if you're a middle-income American, low-income American, you're a senior that's living paycheck to paycheck. $275 is a lot of money. The average Social Security check a senior gets in this country is around $1,600. So when you, if you're losing $275 of that to the Biden tax, that's a significant chunk of change. Yeah, it's unfortunate. We're talking with U.S. Senator Roger Marshall here from the great state of Kansas. Uh, last couple questions before we have to let you go. I know you're a busy guy, but uh, let's talk about trying to get the economy back up and going. They've tried to ramp through the Build Back Better plan. They failed miserably on that one. They tried to extend some of the child tax credits. That failed miserably. They tried to do the election bill. That failed miserably. What's on the slate right now in the Senate because of such a narrow margin in that filibuster that you guys are hanging on to right now? Are they trying to extend this Build Back Better? Are they trying to revisit some crazy spending packages? What's on the slate currently? Well, you know, a couple of things. Of course, uh, Chuck Schumer is incompetent. We were supposed to vote on a post office reform that would have guaranteed that we'd have six days of delivered mail in, in Kansas uh, and, and fixing some of their financial issues. But Nancy Pelosi sent over the wrong bill. Can you imagine that? They sent over the wrong bill. So we have nothing to do this week, I mean, relative to what the plan was. So we're up here voting on a few nominees. Oh, by the way, the government's funding runs out uh, this week as well. But, you know, I've not had one Kansan say, oh, my gosh, we're so worried if the government uh, closes down. Matter of fact, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe we could save some money if the government would close down for a couple of days. Uh, so we'll get through that little hiccup as well. And then I think, again, back to this, uh, the, the, the declaration of emergency is as long as Biden's got that on board, he can try to do more build back better. So they use that as, as a shield to say, look, we've got to do more. We need to spend more money on all these different social issues. They want to grow the government, big government socialism, and they're going to use that COVID as an excuse. Amen. Last question before we let you go, but the Freedom Convoy going on up in Canada right now, did that have any influence with you guys wanting to end the emergency declaration right now on, uh, on COVID issues? And do you think that that's been kind of a beacon of a recognition that many people are frustrated with this, some, uh, some of this garbage? You know, I, I think it's a, a great flagship to just say how much uh, Americans, in this case Canadians and Americans, are frustrated with the situation. I think that's why you're seeing some purple states and even some blue states uh, draw back some of their their uh, mandates as well. So sometimes we live with our head in the in the sand up here like ostriches, but we've all seen that happening. And I hope they come to Washington. I hope. And by the way, I hope the motor, motorcyclers uh, join them. I hope my tractor people join them. I mean, think about the cost of fertilizer and inflation, all these things being driven by by Joe Biden as well. So we it is it's got everyone's attention, and I sure salute those people that are willing to stand up for their freedoms. Well, God bless you for fighting for it uh, for our front there in Washington D.C. You've been doing a great job, and we love everything you're doing. It's Senator Roger Marshall from the state of Kansas. We appreciate the time, my friend. Thank you, Andy. Have a great week. There it is, U.S. Senator Roger Marshall. We always appreciate his time very much. We'll take a bottom-of-the-hour break. When we come back, we'll take your phone calls, open lines to you. We'll also give away another four-pack of Disney on Ice tickets. We'll do that, and we'll have our chat with Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt. Going out on the last half hour with a bang. Tell you what, we'll do that when we come back all right here on Kansas Talk, here on the Big Talker KQAM. Stay here. You're listening to Kansas Talk with Andy Hoosier. Welcome back into the program. Last half hour on the home stretch here on the Big Talker KQAM. Thanks for hanging out this morning, as always, as you're waking up trying to get moving. Party rock! 
Trying to get you pumped up. It's what we do. Welcome in 316-721-8255, 316-721-TALK. We'll have our interview with Derek Schmidt here in just a moment, Kansas Attorney General. But we do have some calls on the line, so let's take a couple before we do that one at 316-721-8255. Line number one. Good morning. Who's this? Mr. Andy. Sean, what's happening, sir? How we doing? I tell you what, there's 8 billion people on the planet, but since it's a Saturday, most people are taking the day off, but not you. you no. got to get on the airwaves and make waves. That's what I'm talking about. We we are on the air six days a week. There's never a time or a rest, to, and uh, there's a lot to do. we got a lot of fights to be had, and uh, that doesn't uh, take any breaks. Now, the fight never ends, does it? That's very true. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> What's on your mind? All right, so uh, the... The counties with the older generations, the older general, what do we do to fix this issue? Because in 20 years, we may not be a Republican state any longer if this trend continues. Well, that is a uh, disconcerting thought. Um, you said there's uh, seven counties that are blue? There are, well, there are a few counties that are younger, obviously, with the younger demographic, the younger age, but at the same time, those are already in the more populated areas. Now, here's the crazy part. Uh, out in western Kansas, near the Garden City area in Finney County, the uh, the largest population is like a, like a 10 through 20 age group, so they're the younger ones, which is very fascinating to me, but all the rural counties that are really dominating the Republican-controlled legislature, the ones that are keeping us conservative, every one of those counties just about are really 70-plus for the oldest demographic, or for the largest demographic? Well, it, it, it uh, seems to me it wasn't all that long ago, the last time I looked at a map of Kansas, and um, out of 105 counties, like two or three of them were blue, and I know one of them uh, is home to Lawrence, which is a college town, so that's not surprising. And I think the other one, is uh I can't remember the name, but it's home to Manhattan, which is also a college town. You know that's where K State's at. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I think it's Riley County. Of course, you got Fort Riley there too. So, and a lot of the military votes Republican. But uh, uh, yeah, um, it's an geez, issue because the well, yeah, it's an issue because the younger generation predominantly votes a little bit not as conservative. At the same time, the more populated areas where the universities are and uh, where the large cities are is where they predominantly vote a little bit more to the left, which means uh, that we could see be seeing a major change here politically uh, across the state in the next ten to twenty years. Well, here's the problem, or I don't know, I, I don't. You could call it a problem, but then again. Um, it could spell some hope for the future. Uh, <clears throat> you know, gas is at $3.29 a gallon. And um, the other day I went to Dollar General and uh, a carton of eggs, which uh, used to be a um, dollar for a dozen at least two years ago, mm -hmm. is over two bucks now for, for a dozen. And um, I was paying like a dollar plus tax for a uh, small bag of Temptations cat treats. And today, uh, they're a buck 80 a pack. Wow. Yeah. And a, and a, a bag of Meow Mix uh, was $4 plus tax, a small bag. And now it's $4 and uh, I believe 70 or 75 cents a bag. 
So <clears throat> when you look at the, how inflation is getting worse and um, uh, uh, the cost of everything is going up, uh, plus the fact that uh, – Well, here's, the, here's the, what's going to happen with that is you're right. Hopefully the, the inflation – is going to wake people up and say, wait a second, maybe we don't want these policies. Maybe we can get back on track and actually do the right thing by not getting government involved, not printing all this money, not doing all these socialist policies. The problem is that the ones that voted for it are so far up there. You know what is that it's very difficult for them to understand and grasp the concept that uh, that's what created it. Because what they say now is, well, the rich aren't paying their fair share. The businesses are just gouging us and the government needs to create a program to give it to us for free or at least a subsidized level uh, with some type of government program. That's how they respond to this issue. So we have a major uh, philosophical and we have a major life lesson that we need to teach to them as well. So it's definitely an ongoing battle. Sean, I hate to cut you off short, my friend, but we got to get to uh, another giveaway here and we got to get to our other interview. So always great to talk to you. Have a great weekend and we appreciate that. Let's do a Disney on Ice pack giveaway. What do you say? Come on. Oh, maybe, maybe. To hey, there we go. Let's do it. And beyond. Let it go. Let it go. Hey, it's okay. It's okay. You're welcome. Call now at 721-8255 on KQAM. That's right. Let's do it. The first caller right now, the quickest one to the draw at 721-8255-316721. Talk will get you a four-pack of tickets to Disney on Ice coming up March 10th through the 13th at Interest Bank Arena. You can see all the great Disney princesses. I know my little girl is so excited to go like she is every year. This is the Dream Big Tour, which I believe is more focused on Moana. And again, like I said, if you haven't seen that one, totally recommend it. If you have those kiddos, it's a lot of fun. But you'll see a lot of the great princesses. You'll see Coco and Frozen and all the other great ones with the Dream Big Tour. March 10th through the 13th at Disney on Ice at Interest Bank Arena. We have some calls coming in, so we'll take those right here on KQAM. All right, welcome back into the program. Got our other winner for the Disney on Ice. We'll do it again next Saturday. Stay tuned in every Saturday from 9 to 11. Got some other calls on the line. I want to get to you here in a minute if we get a chance as well. So hang tight right now. Here's our interview. We sat down just a couple days ago with Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt on the latest legal issues here in the state of Kansas. Derek, how are you, my friend? I'm doing great, Andy. Thanks. Good to be back. Always good to talk with you, my friend. Let's start off, obviously, with some of the bigger federal issues right now. We're continuously battling a lot of these COVID-19 mandates. We see the Freedom Convoy going up in Canada right now, and we're continuously concerned about more mandates coming through with uh, federal vaccine mandates. Now we're battling with the rural health care workers. I know you've been involved with some of these ongoing battles. What's the latest with this discussion? Well, that's right. As you know, we challenged uh, four of the Biden uh, mandates. We have three of them blocked by federal court order. The one that slipped by was the so-called CMS mandate, the health care worker mandate. We went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and on a narrow vote, the court uh, allowed that mandate to proceed, even though we're still challenging it in court. And I, I'm still optimistic we're going to win it at the end of the day, but you know, it, 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 the problem is that the health care workers have to make decisions right now because these uh, take-the-jab-or-lose-your-job uh, uh, deadlines are coming into effect. So we've now uh, taken an additional route in addition to the litigation, and we discovered that there are a handful of states where the governors have started to ask uh, the, the Biden administration, CMS, for some type of a waiver for what they're calling uh, staffing stressed health care facilities, basically small rural facilities 
that already before the pandemic weren't able to find enough workers uh, to, to fully staff their operations, they've lost more workers because of the pandemic because people are burned out. They, they've been, you know, they're healthcare heroes. They've been working very hard uh, for the last two years. And now the federal government piles in on top and says, by the way, for those of you who are still working there, uh, if you refuse to get vaccinated, we're going to require you to leave your job. You can't keep working there, even though you've been on the front lines serving patients and saving lives for the last two years. Yeah. Uh, it's an absurd application. So uh, what we've done is said, you know, there are a few states that are applying for a waiver. They haven't been granted it yet, but they're asking. Uh, we think that Kansas ought to do the same. So I've asked the governor to do that. Only the governor can make that application. I'm hopeful she will. Uh, there's no guarantee it works, but there is a guarantee if we don't try, it won't work. Yeah, that is very true. Now, the state legislature did pass the uh, pass the bill what uh, with their special session back in October, November, whenever it was, saying that uh, really if uh, individuals trying to apply for a religious or medical exemption from the vaccines, any type of mandate, then uh, the business or the company just has to accept those. Why doesn't that fall under the category for healthcare workers as well if they try to apply for maybe a medical or a religious exemption on getting that vaccine? Because I know federally, as you mentioned, I mean, this is really the only industry left that we've seen that still has a massive mandate of you must get this or else. Do those exemptions fall in place for healthcare workers in Kansas right now? Yes, they do, Andy, and uh, actually quite a large number have applied and are relying on those. Good. One of the things, for example, that the federal government could do if it were to grant some type of a waiver, even if it's not a full waiver that says this thing doesn't apply, uh, it could expressly acknowledge as a type of waiver that uh, the Biden administration is going to respect these Kansas waivers, these Kansas exemptions, uh, the religious exemption, the medical exemption that are put into place in state law. And that would give everybody comfort because we would know that there wouldn't be a looming fight ahead where state law says you're entitled to these waivers if you're a healthcare worker, but it's at least conceivable that the federal government comes back and says, we don't care what state law says, we're not going to let you have them, and then you have another fight. So at a bare minimum, it would seem helpful if the Biden administration would, would, in a form of a waiver, acknowledge that it's going to respect those Kansas state law exemptions that so many are already relying on. Yeah, that would be really good. Now, we did get word from the FDA as kind of a down low, we weren't really supposed to know this kind of information, but it sounds like the Biden administration's working on trying to mandate some form of annual shot going on. Have you heard anything about that? And do you see, I mean, obviously, if it does happen, we'll see some potential lawsuits coming out of that down the road. But it sounds like that's the direction we're going nationally right now. Well, you know, I've seen some of the news coverage. I haven't seen anything official uh, on that out of the administration. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying I haven't seen it. You know, we're, we're standing up and fighting all of these federal mandates. We just don't think it's the federal government's role uh, to punish people for individual health care decisions that they make, period, end of story. Hasn't been done before in American history except in the military context. Uh, and it shouldn't be happening now, and it certainly shouldn't continue into the future. So we'll, exactly. we'll keep a close eye on that like everybody is. Good. Well, the good news is we have an election season, and uh, with how unpopular those types of mandates are, I think a lot of Democrats are starting to change their tone on that topic for sure. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about another national-ish topic that's going on is uh, immigration. Obviously been a big issue going on down at the border, but we've also seen other states trying to take matters into their own hands, like the state of California, for example, wanting to become a quote-unquote sanctuary state to try and protect illegal immigrants and not enforce immigration policy. Obviously not very constitutional. We can talk about that here in just a minute, but I never thought that we would see something like that come to the home front here in Kansas as there's an issue apparently going on with Kansas City wanting to become a sanctuary city? Really? 
Well, exactly, Andy. That's a, that's a one word uh, sums it up, really. Uh, you know, if you ask the folks that are doing this in the local government in Kansas City, Kansas, uh, they, will, they will run away from that term sanctuary. Oh, it's not a sanctuary. That's not what we're doing. Well, it's exactly what they're doing. Uh, they passed an ordinance that tries to direct their local law enforcement not to cooperate generally, with a few exceptions, with federal immigration enforcement efforts, not to participate, not to help, not to share information. And their ordinance also provides for the issuance of these brand new local municipal government identification cards uh, that really aren't limited with no proof of identity. They're designed to be given to people in the country illegally as well as others. And they can then be used for various governmental purposes like obtaining benefits. Uh, you know, obviously that's wrong. Shouldn't be happening. Uh, very disappointed it's happening here in Kansas. And uh, what we've said is that current state law is, is really vague on the subject. Kansas actually doesn't have a state law that prohibits uh, expressly local jurisdictions from doing that sort of thing. I think we ought to. Um, it, it, it's too bad we have to go down this road, but I've, I'm going to ask the legislature to uh, enact a law that says you can't have these sanctuary jurisdictions in Kansas. We expect our law enforcement to cooperate with others in enforcing all the laws, including these. Uh, and we want to make sure that when the government issues an ID, it doesn't get misused, for example, for uh, state purposes, for voting, or for whatever state purpose it might be state benefit. So um, sort of a shame we have to go this way here in Kansas. We yeah. thought this was more of a coastal issue, but uh, uh, here we are. Have to go that way. What's really sad about the situation, though, Derek, is that the fact that we have federalism. We have different rights for the states and different rights for the federal government, and the federal government's supposed to be handling immigration issues. Now, obviously, we'll not, and we'll talk about that here in just a minute as well, but can the state actually make their own immigration policy and try to defend this? Because that's one thing that the states have given up powers for to the federal government to handle is foreign policy and immigration status. Why are they trying to take matters into their own hands? Well, and, you know, I've said on that issue, there are occasions, I think, where the state ought to step up and help when the federal government refuses to do its job. For example, the Biden administration's uh, refusal to have meaningful border security. I think we ought to be assisting Texas, for example, as they're standing in the breach Mm -hmm. and preventing, uh, you know, not just migrants generally, but prohibiting particular individuals who come to the United States with criminal intent, whether they're drug runners or human smugglers or whatever it may be. Um, they ought to be stopped at the border by the feds. But if the feds aren't going to stop them there effectively, we ought to at least help Texas stop them in Texas before they you know, come to Kansas and do additional things. So, you know, I, I do think that sometimes the states uh, and the locals have to step up, but we ought to be stepping up to enforce, to assist in enforcing exactly. uh, federal law, not to try to undercut uh, federal immigration law. And, and that's what these sanctuary jurisdictions do. They, they deliberately tell uh, enforcement officials locally and uh, to turn a blind eye uh, to the consequences of the federal government's failure. And, and that's wrong. It's just going the wrong direction. Amen to that 100%. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some Second Amendment issues. Felons who have committed crimes, who continuously commit crimes, and somehow get their hands on a firearm. Don't know how that happens if they're not supposed to have a gun, because I thought that we had gun laws in place to where they couldn't. But nonetheless, they get their hands on a firearm, and they continue to commit felonies with a firearm illegally purchased. What's going on right now with some law on what happens if they do get caught with an illegal firearm, and do they go to jail, or what's the scenario right now? Yeah, you know, everybody pretty much agrees that uh, uh, people, felons who use firearms to commit violent crimes and hurt other people, uh, are a serious problem in society that has to be addressed and stopped. Those of us who are on the pro-Second Amendment side uh, argue very strongly that the way to address that is to address the criminal misbehavior, to focus on the criminal, not on the gun. That's how you solve this problem. 
And that's what we're working on right now with some legislation in Topeka that we proposed and are advocating. The current law, of course, current law in Kansas, says that if you're a convicted felon, you're not supposed to possess a firearm uh, in most circumstances. And if you do, it's a new crime. It's the crime of uh, felon in possession of a firearm. The problem with the current law uh, is that the, the penalty for that new felony, the criminal possession, uh, is almost always presumptive probation. And, uh, you know, most of these folks, I mean, in most communities, if you talk to law enforcement, they'll tell you it's a relatively small number of people that keep committing the violent crimes over and over and over again. Uh, and, you know, most of those folks uh, uh, know that at the end of the day, if they're a convicted felon, they're not supposed to have a firearm already, but they go ahead and carry one and use it while they're committing a new crime, uh, they're going to get punished for the new crime, but they're probably not going to get punished for the new uh, crime of carrying a firearm they weren't supposed to have. So it's kind of a almost like a get-out-of-jail-free card for ignoring that uh, law that says you're not supposed to have this firearm if you're already a convicted felon. So what we're proposing is very targeted. It says that if you're a convicted felon and you're already prohibited under state law, no changes here, uh, from, from possessing a firearm, and you ignore that law and still possess a firearm, and you possess that firearm while you are committing a new violent felony, mm -hmm. you have to go to prison. You have to serve the prison time for the weapons charge. You don't just get to get probation for the weapons charge. The thing gets all rolled up and really has no real consequence uh, with the, the charge for the new crime. I think there ought to be a penalty for thumbing people who thumb their nose at that statute because it exists for good purpose. Yeah, really. I think this is really a sign of what we've seen with some of the progressive laws on trying to loosening up punishments for some to where we just give them a slap on the wrist, they don't do it again, and voila, they seem to be doing it all over again when they really need to be uh, be punished for the crime that they've committed. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, because we've talked about this before in your program, Andy, I'm a big believer in those criminal justice reform penalties that try to identify people who they are in prison because of what they've done. But really, we would be dealing with them better in a different way. They're drug addicts. And yeah. so if we dealt with the addiction, we could, you know, it's not only helpful to them, it's helpful to society. You can break the addiction. They, they don't reoffend and hurt other people. So, too, with mental health issues. But the flip side of that that we sometimes don't talk about enough, in my view, is that while we're doing all that, we also need to be reforming the justice system so that people who are repeat violent felons, they continue to hurt innocent citizens in our communities. They belong in prison. We need to make sure we put them there and separate them from society. So it's two sides of the same coin, and this is designed to be part of that broader effort. Yeah, amen to that. Now, on the flip side of it, uh, individuals who I know a lot of friends, and they've asked me about this, and uh, I've never known really how to guide them or where to guide them. Someone who's maybe committed a felony, you know, that when they were young, 18, 19 years old, they're now 50, 60 years old now, and they're like, I still am not able to possess a firearm to protect myself. Is there a way for them to be able to have a a, a limit on when they can to try and apply to get a firearm for protection or or to be able to at least just have one in their possession again? There are. It, they apply, it applies in certain circumstances. There's a lot of nuances in the law about restoration of rights related to expungement, other tools that are available to uh, try to allow somebody in your circumstance that, that you've just described, the circumstance you've just described, uh, to get restoration of their firearms rights. Yeah. And you know, the best advice there is consult with an attorney who can help walk an individual on the facts of their case through that law. There's a lot of discussion uh, in public policy circles about maybe updating some of those laws, uh, but those updates haven't happened just sure. yet.
generally speaking. Sure. Uh, and that's a good conversation. Like you said, I think that uh, uh, needs to happen at some level. Last couple of questions for you. We're talking with Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt as we talk about some of the latest issues. Let's bring it back down home to the home front here again uh, and talking about criminals and going to prison and, you know, actually paying the consequence for the crimes that you commit. There are, unfortunately, with the way the world's going and with the ever-expanding interweb, a lot of really sick individuals that are online uh, that are trading different pictures of underage children, child pornography, child trafficking. There's a lot of issues going on right now here's the big question is apparently i was not aware of this is that if you are trading some of those pictures with child pornography or child pictures online do you actually consider yourself a sex offender and do you have to register yourself as a sex offender in the state of kansas yeah so there's a hole in the law i think this is a classic case of the law has not kept up with technology um, the general rule is that sex offenders who are trading in, uh, possessing or trading in images of child pornography, which are also accurately called uh, images, pictures of child sexual abuse. I mean, that's what child pornography is, is photographs of children being sexually abused uh, or exploited. Um, uh, generally speaking, once folks in that position are caught, prosecuted, convicted, and served their time, they do then have to register as sex offenders afterwards. That's the general rule. But because the methods for trading in this stuff uh, have changed, migrated online, um, the law hasn't really caught up with that. And so there are some loopholes where some individuals who trade those images of child sexual abuse online and are caught and convicted of doing that online are not required to register after they've served their sentence. We think that loophole has to be plugged. It makes no sense whatsoever, but that's the current state of the law. And so we've asked the legislature to, to make that change and plug that loophole. Wow, I was not aware of that. Now, do those that do have to uh, register as sex offenders in communities, they still have to go to all their neighbors and knock on the door and let them know that they are a registered sex offender as well? I know that used to be a thing. Yeah, no, I don't believe that's currently, there's not that affirmative duty to that, but there is the public disclosure, uh, you know, on the uh, appropriate website, the information is available. You can go out and do the search uh, online and, uh, you know, actually find the location, the, the residences of uh, registered offenders. And, of course, there are other limitations on things that registered offenders are not allowed to do. Agreed. Still kind of said that we have to deal with some of these issues and that there are still loopholes in the system to allow individuals to get away with some of this gross stuff. But overall, it seems like that we're moving further and progressing in the right direction, trying to, uh, as you mentioned, seal up some of these loopholes, right? You know, I think so, Andy. Uh, it's a never-ending uh, list of things that need to be done, but we are making progress. We're winning a lot more than we're losing. And I like to think that, uh, you know, state's better tomorrow than it was yesterday because of all this effort we're doing together. Amen to that. I love it. It's Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt. Keep up the fight, my friend. It's always great to talk to you, and let's do this again here real soon. Sounds great. Thank you, Andy. Take care. There it is. We always appreciate uh, Kansas Attorney General Derek Schmidt. That does it for us today. Sorry for all the callers that uh, we weren't able to get to. We'll get to you next Saturday. Stay tuned in for that. Until then, have a great weekend. We're back at it on Monday with The Voice Reason. Back at it on Kansas Talk next Saturday, 9 to 11. Joe Pegg's live with Weekend coming up here on KQAM. We'll see you then.